0: Today's scripture passage is um, a familiar passage from the opening words to the Gospel of John. I'll be reading John 1 1 to 5 and then verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And then in verse 14, And the word became flesh and lived among us, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord God, today I offer these words that in their speaking and in their hearing, they may have upon them your blessing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. If I have preached a sermon directly on the Trinity, I do not remember it. The few sermons I have heard directly on the Trinity have not compelled me to leave my nets behind and follow Jesus down this homiletic path. In fact, I don't believe I have ever heard a sermon on the Trinity that I could fully follow or through which I could fully remain awake. Though at the early service, someone told me that Casey preached on the Trinity once. Which means I was either not here, (laughs) hopefully, or more likely, it says more about my skills in listening to sermons than those who are called to give them. Trying to master the doctrine of the Trinity... In seminary, I spent weekday mornings, several weeks one summer, reading a dense book on the subject that had been recommended to me. As I recall, it maintained that the Trinity is a way of depicting interrelationships within God's own self that can best be understood as a dance, a dance into which we are invited, perhaps like a circle dance. Yet more times a year than nearly any other hymn in our hymn book, we give voice to the Trinity when we sing as we did today, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. After we hear assurance of our pardon, we sing again virtually every Sunday, Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. When we present our offerings, we conclude by singing praise, Be Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And when we affirm our faith in baptism at the Lord's table, when we receive new members, we say together, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And I believe in the Holy Ghost. The doctrine of the Trinity is as embedded in our worship as our bulletins and pews, prayer cards, and children's choirs. Over my years in the Presbyterian Church, the Trinity has meant different things to me, some of which are theologically correct, some less so. The Trinity represents different identities within the same God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It represents different functions within God's being and doing. God is creator. Christ is redeemer. The spirit as sustainer. It represents an ordering of God's relationship with the world, which we are only able to describe in chronological terms. God first creates the world, then redeems it in Christ Jesus then sends the Spirit to be with us following Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. While great debates raged in the early centuries of the Church about different aspects of the Trinity, it has always been, for me, something of a formula. Three in one, one in three. Yet a formula with names that are quite personal. God the Father. Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, the Holy Spirit. In choosing to preach on the Trinity today, I want to share with you insights that I have gleaned over the past year, which have made this doctrine come a little bit more to life for me. They come from a chapter entitled Metaphysics, in a book of essays called The Givenness of Things by Marilyn Robinson. You've heard me speak of Marilyn Robinson before, and I want to tell you a little bit about who she is before we proceed to the Trinity. Marilyn Robinson is a novelist and essayist who teaches creative writing at the famed Writers' Workshop at the University of Iowa. Though I lived within half an hour of that campus for over a decade, I do not know her personally. Several times people have asked me if I do. Iowa is a small state. It's not that small. She was reared in Idaho. She grew up Presbyterian. She graduated from Pembroke College at Brown University and then received a Ph.D. in English from the University of Washington. She has an interest in John Calvin in the Old Testament and in several major historical periods of theology. Her interest grows more out of her deep commitment to the Christian faith than it does out of her professional academic discipline. She is also an active member of a small congregational church on the campus of the University of Iowa which, like many congregations of its genre, has fewer members than it once had, a building that is challenging, though it is on the National Historic Register, and a committed membership which carries on a tradition of mainline Protestant preaching, teaching, and social witness against odds that have not been encouraging the last 50 years. Above all, Marilyn Robinson is a dense writer. If you read her, plan to have a dictionary up on your screen or open at your desk. Hone your patience as you will use every bit of it with which you were born. A member of our church who admires her writing has said to me, I have never read anyone who seems more unfriendly toward her reader. (laughs) And that's a compliment. (laughs) Yet despite her density, I believe that for more than a decade, she has been one of the wisest voices, offering critique, challenge, and clarification for the role of mainline Christianity within the church universal and within our culture in America today. So in that spirit, I want to share with you some of what Marilyn Robinson has written concerning the Trinity. This section of the sermon is about seven minutes long. Bear with me. <laughs> she begins her discussion of the Trinity with her understanding of Jesus Christ. My Christology is high, she writes, in that I take Christ to be with God And to be God. And I take it to be true that without Him, nothing was made that was made. She expands on this idea that Christ is God and God is Christ in talking about her theological hero, John Calvin. Calvin makes no distinction between Jesus Christ and God the Father, she says. Like the New Testament writers, he uses the word Lord whether either of them is intended or, in effect, where both of them are intended. This is no doubt an inevitable consequence of this very high Christology. Unlike much of Christian theology... Robinson does not try to explain the how of the Trinity, how God is Christ, how Christ is God, how how God is Spirit and Christ is Spirit and Spirit is God. Rather, she says that the Trinity is a mystery of the profoundest kind, one that eludes our conceptualization. In a later chapter in the book, she writes, there is a very great imponderable at the heart of Christian thought, the Trinity, which seems to me to forbid the attribution of any act or any quality to any of its persons with even the passing implication that it is less the act or the quality of the others, or any less to be attributed to the Godhead altogether than to any of its persons. One of the things that I have long experienced in, in the church in, in preaching and teaching is an assumption that I think is deeply embedded within many of us. That the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and judgment and punishment. And the God of the New Testament, Christ, is a forgiving God. A God of love and peace. If we hold that view, we are pitting God against Christ. We're saying that the character of God is more demanding and the character of Christ is more loving. What Robinson is doing is getting us to put these together in the Trinity. God is one. That's what I like about her. On a personal note, It has long been a feature of my own Christian vocabulary and language to elide God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. I sometimes say God does this. I sometimes say the Holy Spirit does this. I sometimes say Christ does this. It never makes much difference to me. I am glad to see that Robinson does the same thing and roots this practice to Calvin. It is always good to be in line with one's ancestors. (laughs) For me and for us as Presbyterians, God is Christ, is Spirit, is Christ, is God. Once Robinson affirms this total enmeshment of God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit, she moves to describing what such an understanding, what a linking, what, what such an enmeshment means for all of creation, for us as human beings, for animals, for our world, and for things beyond our world. This link of God and Christ and Spirit, she writes, opens on all being of every kind, including everything known to us and everything still to be known to us, for which our words and concepts may well be wholly inadequate. Robinson is saying that what God created was not necessarily limited to the people and plants and animals and earth as we know it, but that God created whatever has been created, what we know and what we don't know. She's also saying that in this majestic act of creation, Christ is with God as God creating. That is what she means by the phrase high Christology. The highest view of the identity and role of Jesus Christ possible. Now from this high high Christology, Robinson then moves to what this means for our place within the created order. Follow me here. We're almost done, but you still got some sledding to do. (laughs) If Christ was present at creation, she writes, and if existence was made with or through him, Such a high Christology implies a high anthropology, a high view of humanity, of human nature, and of our role in all of creation. To properly value the incarnation, the reality that God became a human being, As a pledge of fervent love, we must try to see the world and the human creature as deserving such love. We must sense that we are made a little less than God and that we are crowned with glory and honor. To worship God in the creation, she says, is to celebrate as well the fact that we ourselves are created. That we are strangely and wonderfully made. I love that phrase. Strangely and wonderfully made. Our honor and glory are not our own doing, she says, and they are only more precious more to be enjoyed and explored for that very reason. A very high view of humanity based on a very high view of Christ. Now Robinson concludes her essay by quoting Pico della Mirandola, a 15th century Italian philosopher who at age 23 during the early stages of the Renaissance gave a public oration aptly titled On the Dignity of Man. It is an essay to which I remember being exposed at age 18 during my first semester of Western Civ. Here's what Pico writes. I understand why man is the animal that is most happy and is therefore worthy of all wonder. And lastly, what the state is that allotted to man the succession of things and that is capable of arousing envy not only in the brutes but also in the stars and even in the minds beyond the world. It is wonderful and beyond belief. For this is the reason why man is rightly said and thought to be a great marvel and of all the animals really worthy to wonder, worthy of wonder. Pico then presents an arresting image of God speaking to Adam in the Garden of Eden. I have placed thee at the center of the world, God says, that from there thou mayest more conveniently look around and see whatever is in the world. Thou, like a judge appointed for being honorable, art the molder and maker of thyself. Thou mayest sculpt thyself Into whatever shape thou dost prefer. Now, while this last line, thou mayest sculpt thyself into whatever shape thou dost prefer, may be a little less theologically humble than we might like, it illustrates that because Christ was present at creation, and because God became human in Christ, We humans are indeed, in the words of Psalm 8, a little lower than God and crowned with glory and honor. The incarnation of the one present at creation renders us this vaulted role. High Christology leads to high anthropology. Okay, you've done well. Take a break. (laughs) Take a deep breath. Stand up and stretch if you'd like to. Don't leave. My feelings will be hurt. I've only got 350 words left, so let me say what I think all this means for us. Like many of you, I am distressed about the state of the world, at least as I see it. I've never been more interested in, yet more repulsed by the presidential election that we are in and the dehumanizing language to which we have been subjected to date. For the first time in my adult life, I am moderately fearful, though by no means hopeless, about the future of our nation, most specifically about the state of the world based on the role that our nation may or may not play. I am saddened by what happens to be another successful terrorist attack, and even by a lone intruder on the White House lawn being shot. Both events on one of the most beautiful days that I have ever experienced in this city. So that's my distress. And yet I believe in the Trinity. I believe in its high Christology. I believe in its high anthropology. I believe in its bestowing upon us the power and responsibility to receive the world as a gift. To be fruitful and multiply within it. To till it and keep it. To fill the earth and subdue it. To have dominion over every living thing that moves upon the face of the earth. I believe with Pico that we are indeed the animal most happy, worthy of all wonder, a great marvel. And I believe that if we accept the whole of creation as the gift from God that it is, if we honor its people, its plants and its animals, its stars and its space and its air and its water, if we stand at the center and honor the Christ who made it, whether we know Him initially as Christ or as God or as Holy Spirit, I trust that we will be the animal most happy, a little lower than God, crowned with glory and honor. And maybe, just maybe, as the molder and maker of ourselves, we will sculpt ourselves by choice into whatever shape God prefers, whatever shape Christ prefers, whatever shape the Holy Spirit prefers, and that our choice will be one with their Trinitarian preference crowned with honor and glory we will then be truly the animal most happy Amen